There's about uh, 20 to 25 minutes for questions. Anybody has questions about the talks, about practice, about taking the practice home? Anything that seems important? Yeah. Um, I have have a question that's been kind of on my mind for a while, but I've been kind of (laughs) nervous to ask it, I guess. But I always see, you know, when people put their hands, you know, in, in gratitude or in things, but where did that originate from and what what's behind I mean do you know we keep our fingers separated do we keep them closed or what what you mm-hmm. know and what what goes through your head when you are bowing your head and putting your hand to your chest yeah so the word is Anjali and you know it's a gesture of gratitude and respect and thanks and whatever else you want it to be really and I think for me uh, I mean depends what I'm where I'm directing my attention like sometimes when I you know and this may sound strange to some people but when I like begin my sits you know I might imagine the Buddha as a teacher as my teacher and how grateful I am and really thinking about putting my head down on the earth because uh, that was the tradition at the time you know you do a bow uh, to your teacher not just to the Buddha but it was just part of the culture and I've you know, I've been part of that Eastern culture a lot, so I've done a lot of bowing. So for me, it's like uh, in my mind, I'm doing a bow. I'm, I'm showing some humility and some gratitude. Um, but it, so it really depends like how you can make it useful. I mean, I think it's important that the rituals be functional. And you have to experiment. Like, it's something we construct. Now, I think there are some gestures that maybe are related to some of the energy patterns of the body and mind, and they're just going to feel more appropriate than, you know, like if we did this, (laughs) it might not kind of feel right. (laughs) But we could try it. (laughs) You know, so maybe there's something about the heart chakra, the heart center, and the hands coming together, and there's so much sensitivity in the hands. Thich Han has a nice image, like making a little bud with your hands, you know, but, you know, different traditions have different different styles. And at Common Ground, you know, there's no enforced orthodoxy, and so it's all over the place. Some people do, some people don't, some people do it grudgingly, some people want everybody to do it. <laughs> I don't know what else, I, I, I think... Uh, it will be interesting to see, you know, how we evolve. There, there tends to be, you know, once something gets started, there tends to be a bit of like you have to do it because you're part of the group. And um, I've noticed with my Western teachers and also with myself now too that I'm, I'm just a little careful about making it sort of standard procedure to do Anjali when, you know, whenever. Because then, well, one, it, it creates sort of... A, an in crowd and an out crowd because the new folks they don't know what the hell's going on and uh, you know and then it's like well I'm part of the in crowd because I feel comfortable with this or I know how to do this or I know what this is about so we haven't you know we haven't made a few times but uh, generally we're not doing it a lot but I encourage people especially in the privacy of your home but generally to find things that are meaningful gestures that are meaningful I've had some teachers that have said things like, 
there is no Buddhism without bowing. <laughs> and that may be true. We may be missing the boat here, you know, not doing <laughs> formal bows, but it seems like it's working. Yeah, Dia. Well, I noticed when, um, I did, this happened last night when you were talking about Joseph's um, technique of looking at thoughts. And a lot of my thoughts just sort of start as like an image or just maybe a fraction of a word or something. Yeah. And then when I notice that, they don't really, and I'm just wondering if that's sort of, I, I know that's a really ephemeral nature, and I wonder if, wow, I wonder if all thoughts are sort of like that. Just kind of originate as an image or a sensation or a, a word or something. Yeah. I read an interesting book a long time ago. And it, it might have been um, Lucid Dreaming. There's a Stanford professor. I get his name now. Um, but it might have been a different book. But anyway, this person was had some kind of a scientific background. And evidently, they they were talking about dreaming in this case, but what they said was somewhere deep, I think in the brainstem, there was sort of like a random uh, neuron uh, impulse generator, you know, so electrical activity in the mind, and it was just sort of randomly, you know, generating electrical impulses through the brain. And then the dream was, uh, that was sort of the raw stuff of the dream, and then other aspects of the brain other parts of the brain, sort of use that seemingly random movement to construct something. And so this can be an insight where um, we're observing the quality of the mind, the, the thinking mind, sort of before it enforces meaning, you know, so we're seeing mental activity, whether it's imagistic or in terms of language, words, but we're experiencing it uh, without this imposition that unless it has meaning, don't pay attention to it. Because it's a little disconcerting to see just fragments of thoughts and fragments of images and not things not making sense, you know. It's, isn't it a little disconcerting to see that part of the mind? Because we don't... It, we don't feel good having the mind be gibberish. You know, we want it to be a sensible, um, yeah, responsible <laughs> organism. You know, it's like, God, if you're going to talk to me, please make sense. <laughs> so I, I think what I would do is just notice that and relax with it, like don't second guess it, and it, let it have its impact on the mind. Like, let the knowing of that change what we take the mind the be, to be, the thinking mind to be. Yes, yeah, Cecilia. Yeah, I'm just wondering about thought and awareness and if uh, if perhaps they come from the same source and if, if, or you know, is there a difference or can they be the same? Thought and awareness? Yeah. How do you see that they might be the same or similar? Well, you know, when we're talking about um, where uh, where does thought come from, and and I've noticed like historically, like if you look at art history and just it, my own life too, where uh, I've had an idea, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a brilliant idea, and then also I 
see in some art magazine somewhere somebody else did it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and I've seen that arise like in, you know you can see in different cultures you know where where um, pyramids arise or you know I mean uh, but but sometimes really specific imagery and and things will arise and uh, so it, it leads me to think that there's that there's a common source that we all share. Yeah. And um, and so then, if awareness could be um, connecting with that source, then can thought ever be awareness? I think there. I think there are two different things, and I think what you're talking about in terms of the commonality of thought is things like the Jung talked about. You know, the arch, the archetypes, and uh, the collective consciousness, things like that. And, you know, there are things that they're finding out about other species, uh, what are they called, the hundredth monkey syndrome or something like that, where they find that once one member of a species learns something or does something, then it gets picked up very quickly by others in a way that can't be explained through modeling or communication. And just recently I saw on... YouTube, the starlings doing their thing in the air. Some of you probably have seen that. They actually have a technical term for how that flock of birds can communicate like exactly what's going to happen. So there's been, a, for a long time, in different cultures, different religious, spiritual traditions, there's been some pointing to a collective consciousness, like a shared pool. Um, but I think that's the way I would hold that is it's just the same as our thinking mind, except it exists at a, another level. So maybe even our organs, you know, have their own sort of personality, their own baggage, you know, and then the bigger system where that has its personality, and then this sort of envelope of stuff, it has its sort of, and then like like that, maybe there's a galaxy personality, you know. That he or she it shares with other galaxies, you know, the collected consciousness pool of ideas of the galaxies, or something like that. But awareness is like the space in which all that activity is happening. So obviously they're related, but there's you know there's thought, there is intention, there's mental activity. But where does that mental activity happen? Well, it happens in, it happens here. And what is this? Well, this is space. What kind of space? Well, it's space where there's knowing. That knowing really defines this space. In a way, it's synonymous with here and now, right? What would here and now be without knowing? It wouldn't be, you know. So, so they're related in, in the sense that. You know, it's the space that allows the different ideas to be known. And we wouldn't know knowing if there weren't things being known, you know, like ideas. But I don't think they're really the same. I think they're, uh, they play together and make up one thing, which we call this. You know, this is just subject and object, you know, knowing, knowing objects. Sorry, I don't have anything more to say about that. Yeah, Jenna. 
Um, it's sort of a technical question, but in terms of watching thoughts arise and cease, is there, like the way I'm experiencing it when you said there's like this field of sort of like imminent thoughts that aren't really thoughts yet that are, feel like impulses that don't become anything, and then suddenly something will kind of become something and then something will really become something. It seems like that's kind of what's happening in my mind anyway. Mm-hmm. But I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not putting my attention in the right spot to see when something really... Like, it seems like it's already become something by the time I notice it. Yeah. And so, is, where, I guess my question is, is there an opti- optimal place to put the attention that would most readily allow you to see that Yes, that it's <laughs> exactly the right size. You know, right in front of that, that spot where it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and we call it the present moment. <laughs> Because that's where it arises in the present moment. And it's, it's like because we're trying, we're not in the present moment. You know, So it's like a, a relaxed presence. Because then if we're relaxed, then there won't be anything um, disturbing present moment awareness. So if we're relaxed, then we catch it a little bit more clearly. It's, it's a bit of a miracle when we catch something actually arising. Just like it's a bit of a miracle when we're fully present in that relaxed way, unconstructed way. Trying to be present is in the way of being present. So it's a little setup, the instructions. But that's okay, we'll work with it and we'll get that, oh, I'm trying too hard, you know. I'm trying to catch it right at the beginning. And that that is such a huge construct. That means there's a me who wants to be a good meditator, who's, you know, all of that is just in the way. But... You know, that's okay, because we'll catch that, and then we'll simplify it, and it'll be, we'll find that, that razor's edge between not caring enough to be fully present and caring too much, and so there's too much of a sense of self with an agenda that gets in the way of being present. And there's a little place that's neither of those other two. Uh, first... Did you have a question, Mary? Yeah. This goes back to what you were saying earlier about the, you know, that whole, I think it's sort of, well, what I'm thinking of is Rupert Sheldrake and Morphic Fields and, mm-hmm. you know, the rats in the lab and Britain learn things that rats in the lab in the U.S. are learning. So essentially what you're saying is that that just gets more and more and more and more expansive and somehow we each tune in somehow to some piece of that that then that's what we're watching, we're trying to watch yeah. arise. Yeah, I don't know, but it makes a lot of sense to me that that uh, organisms there there are organisms exist in a sense hierarchically, and uh, you know species and you know within our own body. I once had this little uh, insight back in the eighties. I was reading a book about this, and my it just felt like my mind exploded. Just the idea itself, because it's like an anatta idea, because we're so obsessed with this particular layer of organization, but it's just one of many, many, many layers of organization around which consciousness tends to cohere. So it has it has a sense of uh, of integrity 
which can get confusing because then we can see it as somehow being different than everything else, see it as being apart from everything else. But it's just another layer. Uh, so yeah, I think that's basically right. And uh, you know, people have written quite a bit about this, but not not so much in scientific literature. That's more recent, where people like you mentioned, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, has a couple books out. What, what, what's one of his books? In case someone's interested, do you know the title? Oh. A new science, maybe, is one. Maybe a new science is a subtitle. Something like that. And then he's got one. Um, he's an Oxford how, how professor. Dogs know their owners are coming home, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And seven experiments that can change the world, something like that. Mm. I don't know so about that one. Things you can do at home to sort of test this, these kinds of things out. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think he even organized school children to be doing this and reporting. This, I'm curious to see a physicist or see a psychologist or what is this background? He was a biologist, I think. Quantum physics so talks quite a bit about that. Right. Yeah. I think it originally was a biologist of Britain. Yeah. And I don't know what he's been going since then. That's right. Yeah, so yeah. really then it's, it's our inclination to keep our own sense of our self and space intact, really, that sort of disallows us picking up on possibly some of that other kind of... Well, I think we can't help but pick it up. Space if we just I don't think... Stop yeah, so yeah, I don't think we can disconnect from it. We can just pretend we're not connected to it. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's my guess. It's like uh, we're... And part of being disconnected may be part of that consciousness, like to pretend that it's not there may be one of the archetypes of that. You know, like, for example, if there's a collected human consciousness, one of the major archetypes is likely to be the sense that we're not part of something bigger, you know. And then this intuitive sense that maybe we're wrong, (laughs) you know, and then that, that little war or dynamic between those two ideas, that may be an archetype that we get from our collected collective human consciousness, you know, that spiritual what we call that spirit spiritual debate. Yeah, Edith. Neurons are lit up in frustration. My brain will mimic that, and so you can see that that could be a lightning way to move. You know, that's how you know mob action probably takes place. That kind of thing it can also be a common influence. But I would suspect neurons play a large part in that as well. I wanted to ask. I just, 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 you just, I just couldn't. She was saying that she suspects that neuron uh, activity plays a, a role in that, and of course. The mind and body at this level, you know, of course, everything's involved in it. Nothing would be outside of it. But it stimulates other consciousness and other people. Mirror was the word she used. Mirroring, mirroring, then. Got it, got it. It's a a label that they put on neurons that mimic each other in people's brains. Right. I have three questions. Two of them are real swift. What was the um, uh, source for the Anolavine uh, article that you quoted? Uh, it was a Shambhala Sun article where he wrote something on metta. Okay, and then the David Lloyd book? 
uh, la- uh, transcendence and lack? Lack and transcendence. So my third question then has to do with what you were talking about last night uh, in terms of non-clinging um, and um, uh, dependent arising, codependent arising. Um, it seems to me one of the really large keys in that, I'm not sure if the key is the right word, but that whole sense of impartiality, that it's, it, it's really, the no self really is not about me, it's just rolling along. Um, and, and as I can recognize that more, um, I, I see that it's not about me, it's just is. And the more that I can just participate in that is, um, th- then non-clinging arises. Am I, is that accurate? Well, it's accurate in an intellectual way, but th- the actual experience isn't about somebody trying I, right. to get it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Be- I, can I just go on? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. had this experience last night of just um, thinking about non-partiality and all of a sudden had an experience about that. And it, I mean, it's just kind of like uh, an insight experience. Like, Yahoo! Uh, and then a sense of floating. And then like, I just went, Yahoo! And it's like being in a river and just carried along and being okay with that. Yeah. Um, that sounds pleasant. And and not having to, like, as you say, try or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was just there. I mean, it has nothing to do with me. Everything that arises really has nothing to do with my construct of me. Yeah. Yeah, well, you don't need to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jenny. Mine kind of feeds on a couple. Part of what I was trying to make sense out of your trying to make sense. <laughs> when you use the you know the concept of karma, you know, versus the non-self, I thought that was an interesting kind of comparison you were making. You know, it just kind of brought me back. Okay, so like if there's if there's not a self, you know, who is this here that's trying to do all this stuff? <laughs> you know, and you know so. As I was trying to rationalize that, I guess what I was thinking about is the whole thing of, you know, karma and, and the idea of things unfolding naturally. And, you know, and I'm still going back to the intention, you know, who is this person that's trying, or who is this entity that's trying to do this, that I'm putting this intention out there um, to understand, you know, get closer to that understanding than non-self. And... Basically, what it seemed like to me, and it's maybe sort of what Edith was talking about, is it, it feels like the intention that we're putting out there is we're trying to strip away all this conditioning that has made us react in certain ways and do certain, you know, we've been conditioned by biologically, culturally, and what we're really trying to do, our intention out there is to strip all that away to get to the non-self, to just kind of that pure floating down the stream kind of thing where, we're, you know, where we kind of get it, and we occasionally get those inklings of what Edith was talking about. So is that sort of, because in order to do the practice and to have the attention, there's sort of a doer, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm making this way more complex than it has to be, I think, but it, but I'm just trying to make that sense of, you know, you know, we're, we're practicing, we're doing intention to try to understand that there's no self there. <laughs> 
Yeah, we don't have to. St- we don't have to strip it all away. The stripping away is just enough to help us understand what all this is, because that's really what transforms everything: is the change of understanding. We don't have to strip away all the false notions. We just have to see that they're false notions. But some stripping away, some sort of challenging these notions, maybe that's what you mean by stripping away, that helps, can help understand, oh, that's just a notion. And then, then it's like a house of cards. You know, there's an implosion in a moment, for a moment, to some degree, depending on the particular circumstances, where that house of cards falls apart. What felt, you know, this... Um, this uh, mirage or this thing that appeared to be this way is all of a sudden seen as not being that way at all. And then there are consequences to experiencing not that way. And that, you know, it's like it's a relief because that other way of experiencing had some uh, imposed, some imputed weight to it. It felt heavy, it felt tight. I got to strip away all this stuff you know, in order to realize non-self. So it's sort of a heavy conception. And when when there's a moment of insight, however feeble or profound it might be, then for some reason, the things are seen, understood deeply, that this is not how it is. What we thought was there wasn't actually there. So it's about what's not, you know, we see like, oh, it's not like that. It's not so much that we discover what is true. It's more like, oh, this isn't true. So the anatta insight is realizing, oh, it's not that way. And what a relief that is. That's the sort of flavor. Hey, Casey, did you still have a question, Casey? Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Um, And we have time for one more after this. Thanks. I wonder... uh, you know, when we talk about awareness, you know, as a, a concept or a presence or even a words, it's kind of hard for me to get my, uh, you know, in meditation, uh, how do I ask this? It's like, um, it seems to me that when you know, I, I get fairly still, you know, relatively quiet. Um, you know, I can sense that that's happening, you know, and just moving towards what I'm sensing, it it happens more. And on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm continually staying aware that I'm aware that this is happening. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so that's just conceptual too. Is that real? Is that? I mean, it, is it, that that awareness. <sighs> I mean, everything's as real as it is. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that one, one way to maybe address this, your question is, um, it's like understanding the principle 
behind what you're observing or knowing. You know how uh, understanding has consequences. Like your understanding that the mind is really still and quiet. And that under that recognition, right, you're recognizing something, that has a consequence, like you said. Then it seems like that stillness and that peace develops when it's recognized. So what that what is true, like what is true in a deeper sense is how much reality is constructed. You know, it's like through these natural processes, what we see if I saw, instead of seeing peace, if you saw a monster, you know, then what might flow from that is, I wonder if he's going to eat me up. Yeah. So, and then on to fear and into some hell. So, just to see that aspect of it, not to be entranced by the really beautiful, exalted states or overwhelmed by the really dark, uh, hellish states, but just to observe this constructed nature of reality. Because, and this is what's so provocative about the Buddhist teachings, he's talking, he's pointing to a place where the mind, the heart, whatever you want to call it, is not intoxicated by anything that it constructs, any state, any reality that it constructs. But awareness isn't constructed. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it depends how you use that word, but I think the short answer is yes. It's it's not constructed. It's not constructed. Yeah, but, you know, there'd be arguments about that. I think this side of the room, Naveed, and then we'll have to end. Uh, I have one question. Um, Is it true that we say humans are the only species in this earth that are suffering? Because I see animals out there, they're very happy, and they all have this Anita characteristic that you were talking about. You know, they're knowing, but, you know, they're not. Identified with that. So it seems that we are the only one are suffering humans, but then why we say that you know, in the reincarnation cycle, you know, humans are you know, on top of the animals and then <laughs> In a way, because of the complexity of language in the mind, humans can. Uh, <laughs> we can, we can uh, realize a real flowering of dukkha <laughs> in the way that animals can't. But there's some advantages to that. You know, we can create such a flowering of dukkha that we actually, you know, it's so big we sort of catch it. You know, we, we catch our tail. We can see it. See, you know, how that dukkha is something that is constructed. With a more simple animal, it's not so easy the, the dukkha is just more simple, but it's still there because the mind is trapped in instinct, basically. You know, it's trapped in greed and aversion, but it's really simple. So when we look at an, a wild animal, sometimes, often even, we feel like, wow, if only, you know, if only I could be that happy, that simple, that in the moment. But, you know... The mind doesn't have too many dimensions. It has aversion, and it has greed, you know, and it has rest, maybe. And I don't know about you, but when I watch my cat at night sleeping, it's hunting, you know? <laughs> it does all these sort of little movements. <laughs> so, you know, it may seem 
their relative simplicity may seem a step in the right direction. And in a way, you know, if we look at it, understand it correctly, I think there's a lot to learn from looking at wild animals. But simplicity isn't release. Release comes from understanding the mechanisms of the mind, greed and aversion, and that it's impersonal. And animals have less ability to do that because they, they can't sort of, you know, it's precisely because we can create suffering in such immensity that it, it begins to, it begin, we begin to question it in a way that I don't know if animals can do very often or very much. But that's a lot of that is speculation. I don't really know. It's been a while, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> At least 53 years since I was an animal. In case it's an animal flying crazy. Animals in zoos, birds fucking their feathers. But those, those are the animals that live in the human. Like, you know, yeah, animal pests, they get cancer. Elephants, morning for six days, one another. Yeah, number three. And we can, we can pick this up at lunchtime today. <laughs> but we have uh, about an hour and 20 minutes to... And it's actually quite useful, um, having been on retreat, the mind's relatively quiet. Then a lot of interesting thing comes up. The mind begins to move. And then not to feel like there's no choice, but just to let it move and move and move and move. That we, you know, whatever's been set in motion, it can come back to stillness. And then it can get set in motion, and it be, can become, come back to stillness. So we'll just take a few seconds now, take a breath or two together to end this gathering. And we'll have a, a 30-minute walking practice. So the person ringing the bell, if you would ring that at 10 after 10. And then we'll have a 50-minute sit, ending at 11. And people could make the circle uh, at 11 o'clock. And the people who have interviews were starting 10 minutes late, so just keep that in mind. And uh, help me stay on schedule. So 15 minutes or less per person, and then we'll be ready to join the group for the closing circle. And thanks, everyone, for your questions.